AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com. All right, welcome, John. Thanks for joining today. Glad to be here. Manny, thanks for joining today. Pleasure. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about our predictions for 2019 here. And I'll kind of start off and just, uh, you know, my prediction, well, maybe this may be a little bit wishful thinking, but we'll call it a prediction and we're going to discuss it a little bit here is software bill materials will start to gain some real traction. And um, so, uh, you know, I think perhaps a lot of folks aren't really familiar with what this really is and what it's about and why we're doing it. So let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, you know, software bill of materials, it's just like a bill of materials, you know, you go in to get work done. You want to know what ingredients or what functions are being performed. And, you know, it's kind of analogous to, you know, we see the ingredients that are posted on food so that we can make yep. good decisions about our purchasing of food. So, you know, I think that concept or that analogy is very useful here in two respects. And one in that it does help us to make better decisions about the things we purchase, you know, but there are also challenges in that because sometimes you'll see, you know, an ingredient that you don't know what it is and not really sure if that's really going to help right. you or hurt you or something like that. And then we find out maybe 30 years later that who thought that caramel color, you know, was going to become a carcinogen or something along those things. But so there, there are goods and bads about this concept, but at least we have the idea of what it is. And so why is it important? You know, and I kind of reflect back on some of the things that we've had to deal with for a little while. Uh, I think about like the heart bleed vulnerability where, you know, we knew that Heartbleed vulnerability was associated with an open source software package, OpenSSL, but who knew that it was going to show up in a bunch of proprietary appliances? Um, and it turned out that, you know, almost everything that had a web interface on it had this problem. Uh, there were some other examples like that. Shellshock came out very closely after that. Um, Equifax was a victim of a exploit against Apache Struts. And you know, Apache Struts isn't one that, even if you're running a web server, you can't really tell what's in there unless you've actually developed an inventory of the software that's built up that platform and is in use. And another one, you know, John Markley, we've um, talked about this a number of times, vulnerabilities with WebKit associated with mobile devices in the past. It showed up a number of times, right? So these are things where you wouldn't know it was in there unless you have some source of inventory of what's in the uh, in the devices or in the software packages that we purchase. So, you know, and you know, one of the things I've seen that uh, I think helps to further this along is a report that just came out recently. It was posted on December seventh, and this is from the Energy and Commerce Committee, um, and they were talking about basically their cybersecurity strategy report. And in that report, they talk about a number of things, you know, widespread adoption of coordinated disclosure programs. Uh, this is basically to improve the notion of what I like to call bug bounty, that is, you know, being responsible about identifying vulnerabilities and disclosing them in a responsible way. Um, the second one they had in terms of priorities was the implementation of software bills of materials. Uh, the third one, just for uh, you know completeness here, is um, uh, support and stability of open source software ecosystem, which really kind of feeds in this. Is part of this is that open source is getting used in many places. Uh, health of the common vulnerabilities and exposures program. Basically, what they're saying is that we really need to beef up that program and make sure it gets a, a good following. Well, that really plays into the software build materials concept as well, and that 
how do you know what vulnerabilities to fix if you don't know what's actually in there? Nice. Um, it also talks about implementation of supported lifetime strategies for technologies that is, technology turns over over a period of time, we need to have a strategy for managing that turnover. Um, and it's, you know, it's a shorter period of time than the typical things that we buy kind of thing that we've uh, um, kind of grown accustomed to in the past. And then the last one here is strengthening of the public-private partnership model. Now, that notion is around, the way I like to think of it is government programs that help to facilitate improving the security of private organizations. Uh, the CVE program is an example of that, in my opinion. Um, I think they're looking for sort of a both sides of this, that is private industry playing into or contributing to government programs to help with this process as well. And I think that's true in the CVE program as well, where most of the vulnerabilities are really identified outside of that program, but they use it as a tracking and uh, disclosure system to help support it. So mm -hmm. all those concepts really play into this. Now, uh, some of the concepts they have in this report as well are around, there will always be unknown unknowns. So the notion here is that you can't really know what vulnerabilities are in things until some later time. Right. And so you need to understand what, what things are in there to be able to do that. You can't protect what you don't know you have. That kind of makes sense. You need inventory to, to know about that. And I think a lot of organizations are tracking the, um, their inventory of things now much better. But now we need to understand what things make up those things. So uh, further decomposition. So we're getting more granular in terms of uh, what we need to track. Uh, software is no longer written. It's assembled. And I think that's kind of a cool, I hadn't seen this before, uh, but it's absolutely true. If you look at most of the software development activities that exist today, people pull pieces and parts, they put the pieces together and create new functionality with that. And they might have a little bit of integration or glue code around that to help facilitate it. But ultimately, the, the activities are really assembled as opposed to starting from scratch. So we know there are gonna be pieces and parts that the developers don't necessarily understand the pieces and parts, the innards of those. Yeah. And so you need to understand what those uh, pieces and parts are and how they assemble together, and what that means from a security standpoint. Uh, there must be a common cybersecurity language. Um, in the report, they talk about this in the context of CVE that is helping to facilitate conciseness in the terms that are used. I'm not sure that plays into this very much other than the fact that um, you know, we need to have more granularity and accuracy, conciseness in what we discuss. Uh, digital assets age faster and less predictably than physical ones. I think we already talked about a little bit that here. And then cybersecurity takes a whole of society approach. That is, you know, we all have to be really contributors to this. So first of all, I encourage folks to take a look at that report, see what your appendages are. Now, one of the things I see is a little bit lacking in the report is that it doesn't really nail down very specific actions that need to be taken other than perhaps beefing up the CVE program. Mm. But uh, aside from that, I think it sets the stage for more discussion and things that will need to be done. In fact, along the lines of software build materials, this whole concept to me raises more questions than answers, but I think by having that debate, getting some traction around it, I think we'll get further along. So for example, one of the things is the notion of uh, what, I, what I'll call trade-offs here. That is, if you buy an appliance, say an IoT, you know, an Internet of Things device, would you rather have it be a black box that you don't have to understand 
and you just kind of plug it in and it works and the vendor takes care of all the vulnerabilities and things like that? Or would you rather have something that says, this is exactly how it's put together so you can make some personal judgments? And I think different people are gonna have different answers right. about those things. And it's gonna be impossible for any organization to track everything that they have as a part of their organization, even in a household today. If we consider all the pieces and parts, it's very difficult. And you know, when we go grocery shopping, when we look at the, the, you know, the products we purchase, we don't look at the ingredients in every one of them. We don't look at every single ingredient. We try to get an idea. And so that's one of the trade-offs here is, should we be pushing more of the responsibility to the source or should we be taking more responsibility ourselves? Or is it really a balance of the between? So that's one aspect that we need to work through. Um, you know, certainly for internal projects, it is folks that are developing software and assembling things themselves. I think the whole notion of software build materials is really a necessity because somebody's got to do it, right? You have to know what you, you know, if vulnerabilities are, you know, being patched or vulnerabilities are discovered, right. you're going to really need to understand what your internal projects are going to need to make them secure. And then, um, you know, I think uh, sort of a part of this is what tools do we need that we haven't really found yet or created? They're going to need to be tools that not only track device level things, but the components of those devices. You know, I had, didn't do a lot of research. I did a little bit of research. I didn't see a lot of tools that are out there. There are perhaps a few, and I see, John, you're shaking your head. <laughs> yeah. I, keep, I keep asking my buddies in the, in the software business, you know, and, and in the security business, what tools do you, you use to find out, like open source libraries, like you're talking about, OpenSSL, WebKit, how do you, how do you inventory them? And mm -hmm. nobody but that. Yeah, so I think this is where I think, what I mean by traction is that I think more discussions are gonna be taking place and we're gonna take them to sort of the next step here. The last one I just wanted to really cover in terms of the questions is, you know, what about custom code? What if you're creating code, glue code, and it doesn't really have a name. It's not really a part of a library or something like that. How do you inventory that? Right. Do you have a, you know, library this, you know, right. and, then, yeah. and then there's the other. Right. <laughs> so th there's an aspect of that that we need to address as well. But, you know, sort of last aspect of this is fundamentally, um, you know, where is this going to go next? Where do you think? I, you know, I think we're going to have at least some more discussion do we need a program around this? Does there need to be regulation around it, perhaps? Um, you know, I prefer that you know, the industry sort of take it upon itself. But um, John, you know, you've worked in the mobility space a little bit. Have you, it sounds like you've worked in this area a little bit. Yeah, it, and it, it's, and I, and I hate to categorize it as a mess, but it kind of is. I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the you know, like we were talking about earlier, the OpenSSL, WebKit, um, you got GlibC, you know, Apache Cordova. I mean, you can start naming these libraries mm -hmm. that get very commonly used. And, and we ask these developers, when is the last time you updated them? You know, when, when, you know, okay, there's a new version of OpenSSL out. Well, when did you recompile your code? And, and a lot of times they say, oh, we forgot we even used it, you know, <laughs> or, or you know, we do it once and we never, you know, we never touch it again. And it's, uh, those aren't fixing vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the next step that we need to be taken is an industry. And so this is where the prediction comes true, is that as we go out to procure software or working on projects, that is to make this a tr reality ourselves. It is if we have a third party, ven party vendor that's providing an appliance, or we're purchasing software, demand 
a software bill of materials so that we can at least understand conceptually what's in there and have a, and that would be very helpful, especially with versioning information to be able to say, you know, does this vendor really keep up with their patching or are we seeing versions that are out of date here? That can help with the purchasing decision itself. And then beyond that, to be able to help force to, uh, you know, good practices associated with that software going forward. So that's one forcing factor is that as, as purchasers to force these things. And obviously for organizations that are doing software development internally to start the practice themselves in a much more perhaps robust way than we've done in the past. And that helps to facilitate new businesses or new products that will come out to be able to help facilitate tracking things better because I think a spreadsheet's going to be a little arduous. Yeah, I think looking at it on the other side in terms of like how, because you always have to, when you throw a concept like this out and want it to be used because we all look at it and say, yeah, that would be good. That would be, you know, would have huge advantages. You also have to look at the other side is how hard is it to get to that point? Mm -hmm. How hard is it to get the the community out there to start adopting something like this. Mm -hmm. And there is some level of complication to get to that level, right? We're not there today, mm -hmm. so what does it take to get to that point? You, you know, so you have to have these companies that go out there and say, oh yeah, no, I'm going to, during my development process, I will start to create this list mm -hmm. for you, and I will provide it when I sell my product. Mm -hmm. Because we know the normal consumer out there would opt for the black box. Yeah, you know, and, and I think it should be that way. I, I right. think the tendency should be to try to, but you know, this is more of an awareness <clears throat> set of activities, right. particularly in an appliance world, uh, right. where it'd be an awareness and they, you know, um, to, to help make decisions, but not necessarily force very specific things. Yeah. Whereas in, uh, there are other spaces where we're operating our own systems, building our own tools, where we certainly would need to have a more active role in those activities. Yep. And you know, I don't think this is a, an enormous change that necessarily needs to be made. I think for some organizations where they like to keep things internal and proprietary, they don't like to expose what they've mm. uh, got in their tools, it's going to be a little bit of a yeah. big pill to That's swallow. Right. Uh, but generally speaking, I think the uh, the notion of the automation that's needed, like there are discovery tools that exist today that can help extract that kind of information, whether tools are designed for that or not, you can help to extract that kind of information that can be very useful in, in doing things. I think it's a more of a matter of formalizing that process and making it uh, more of an industry accepted standard. Right. Yep. All right, well, that's my prediction. And uh, with that, we'll go over to you, John, and talk about your prediction for 2019. Yeah, the, uh, my, my, my prediction was, was kind of necessitated um, last year uh, when we taped this show. I was on that one, and, and I predicted four things. And, uh, and, and I was given a little bit of grief at the time that they were fairly easy uh, predictions. And in fact, uh, Matt, on the end of the year recap, uh, re restated that <laughs> to me. So, so this year, I wanted to give a little bit more out on the limb type prediction, and uh, and that's uh, where we're going today. Uh, the prediction that I have is really based upon a trend I've seen uh, regarding Bluetooth. There have been, uh, if you look at the patching that's occurred in the mobile world, the PC world, and even the IoT world, you've seen a lot of patching that occurs on the Bluetooth stack. You know, minor vulnerabilities, some major and I keep seeing these every month. Every month there's something Bluetooth getting passed. And, and I have a suspicion that in 2019 
we will continue to see researchers and the community look at the Bluetooth stack, look at, look at the protocol itself, and I suspect that we're going to find some vulnerabilities in the stack that can be exploited. And those exploits probably will be turned into uh, an actual, you know, attack vector that, that could get into the wild. Yeah. You know, John, on this topic, I think, uh, you know, clearly Bluetooth has evolved since its original, you know, as it, before, since it was originally right. introduced. You know, it started out as really just an audio capability and a lot of data right. capabilities have been added to it. And so it would have permissions to be able to access a lot of valuable data on systems and or devices that did not exist previously. And I think, uh, you know, I've noticed on the market there are some other things that are evolving that is things to expand the range of Bluetooth to be able to use it in a broader set of capabilities. You know, almost every car has Bluetooth built into it nowadays. And so the notion of being able to get some high payoff by exploiting Bluetooth has been, has been increasing. So I, I would tend to agree with you on this. Yeah, I mean, and it's not the end of the world. I mean, if people can keep their devices up to date, you know, and, and, and continue to patch, it, I think we're gonna mitigate this in some ways, but, you know, and, and also watch permissions. You know, I think a lot of times, especially in the mobile world, you know, people give too much permission to things, you know, mm -hmm. and, and so we, we I, th I think there's, there's some solutions around that but but there, there's an awful big attack surface, and it's just getting bigger and bigger. And, and I just I just like said it's worry in some ways, but it's also you know I I think it's it's, it's coming due. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, there's an interesting aspect to this that you're referring to the patching, and I guess what we really need to be focused on here or concerned about are the devices that are actually holding the data versus perhaps a peripheral device. Like I oftentimes have a headset on. Right. Um, I can't patch my headset, or at least if there's right. a way to do it, I don't know how. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but it's not the one that really has the data. I kind of wonder if there would be some exploit or mechanism that hasn't been pursued yet that uh, could use it as a relay point or something along those lines or play some games. On, right, uh, to get ultimately to the phone that's connected mm -hmm. to your to your headset. Yeah, I, th I mean, I, I really do think that the, the, the key here is, is, that, is that whole pat is that patching thing because you know, it's it, more and more you're seeing these devices just getting p put out there. Mm -hmm. And like you said with your headset, no real way to do the patching for it. I mean, yeah. you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, they, they don't provide that. And you really, as a user of the device, you really don't expect to have to do it, right? Mm -hmm. You you use the device for as long as it's going to last you, which you know, maybe a couple of years, and then you chuck it and mm -hmm. you get a new one, right? So. <clears throat> yeah. So, so we're expecting reliability or, or basically resiliency in the security controls that are around things right. and the quality of it in that regard. But you know, we also have to consider the fact that there's a big push toward making things like Bluetooth devices much less expensive, and they are getting pretty cheap. Uh, again, you know, I think the real concern here would tend to be around the devices that the Bluetooth device is connecting to. You know, be it a, a smartphone or, or you know, maybe a laptop or something along those lines, which generally are patchable. So, it'll be interesting to see if anything ultimately comes out that you can use a, you know, cheap, unpatchable device as a means to help facilitate gaining access to something that is patchable. Yep. Yeah, and, that, and that's why a little bit on the limb, but I, I think that the trend seems to be going that way. That we got to be, we got to be watching Bluetooth for a while. Yeah. Very good.
Yeah, okay. again, the question will be, will we ever know if your prediction came true? Because uh, I, I don't think I've ever seen a Bluetooth access log to be able to detect an event. That's true. <laughs> That's uh, perhaps we should be thinking about that. That's right. Okay, Manny, so uh, let's go to you here. And what is your prediction for 2019? What do you think we'll see? Yeah, so for this year, um, I was taking a look, and you know, this this is probably not going way out there like uh, like John did, but um, I took a look at some of the the stories that we did this year. Um, in particular, we did a couple of stories on this you know, late in the year mm -hmm. uh, about uh, Magecart attacks. Mm -hmm. uh, now, Magecart, the the attacks themselves ha actually go back to like early 2016. That's when we first started to see them, uh, you know, hit, you know, the, hit the internet. Um, there was some association with some uh, hacking groups at the time, mm -hmm. um, but the the Magecart attacks, you know, for, for I guess folks who don't under, who don't know that or that haven't seen me. that, yeah. So they are uh, attacks that have now attacked basically these e-commerce platforms. You know, so this the CMS is uh, of today, mm -hmm. and in essence, what happens is you've got you know you've got your your beautiful site that you're trying to sell something on. Your attacker comes in, uh, takes control of your site, mm -hmm. and then what they do is they drop in some JavaScript right behind the form for inputting your credit card information. Mm. Okay, so, so they this just, is a payment card. Exactly. So, yeah. Okay. Yep. So it just sits right on the back end and literally just siphons it off, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, um, and so I think we've seen quite a few of these attacks and, and Magecart, I, I, I believe Magecart, the reason why it's called Magecart is because it started with Magento, which is one of these e-commerce, uh, open source e-commerce uh, platforms. And I, I'm starting to see sort of the trend in, you know, it, it started from 2016, actually probably before 2016, that we're seeing a lot more of these open source e-commerce platforms mm. being offered up. Mm -hmm. And so we're now seeing it becoming much easier and a lot lower cost of entry to get into the market of selling stuff on the internet. So, well, in any organization that wants to expand their business is probably looking toward the e-commerce path and, you know, there have there are ways to go through partner organizations or, you know, third-party suppliers to do that, but some might want to try to do it on their own if they're sort of a medium-sized business. Correct. Right. Yep, absolutely. And so you've got this, you know, sort of ramping up, what appears to be ramping up of all these little, you know, sort of mom-and-pop shops that are mm -hmm. trying to sell something on the internet. And and we know from experience that a lot of times these mom and pop shops, security isn't for you know the top thing on their priority. They'd be list. doing it on a budget if they're just trying to get started in and experiment with the right. idea. And right. Again, I think with the ramping up of it being a lot easier to get into this market of starting to sell stuff, that we're going to start seeing more and more of these types of attacks coming in the back end to basically mm -hmm. siphon off these credit cards. Now, it, does this tend to be, a, I, I, I'm making generalizations here, does this tend to be a vulnerability in the e-commerce software itself, or does it tend to be a problem with the way the server is configured, or is it, I mean, Ultimately, somebody's got to get in behind there, right? Right, and it's it's both. So I think I think what you were what you were seeing is we're seeing 
problems with the actual like Magento itself, so mm -hmm. vulnerabilities in the, the software itself. And then and that that allows an attacker to just basically come in from the outside, mm -hmm. you know, get into the onto the back end and start, you know, dropping their, you know, their malicious JavaScript in. But this also can happen from any vulnerability that mm -hmm. exists, right? So this is only one portion right. of what you're setting up when you start, you know, when you open up an e-commerce site. Mm -hmm. So you've got a bunch of different attack vectors that you can hit in order to end up getting on the back end of this thing. Mm -hmm. So that's I think the problem is is yes, we we're seeing it from these, you know, from these open source products that are being available, but we're also seeing it from many other angles that are available mm -hmm. when you set up something like this. So if you consider perhaps a scenario where somebody is they're trying to get into this uh, you know, e-commerce market uh, they're trying to do it at low cost, do it quickly. That tends to lend toward a cloud solution. Uh, folks yes. that are learning about cloud, you know, the cloud. A lot of the uh, reputable cloud infrastructure has quite a number of really good security tools, but it's not automatic. You nope. have to learn how to do that. Right. Uh, putting some potentially vulnerable software on top of it, or perhaps it's not vulnerability in the software, or it might be you have to configure it correctly, right? Correct, yeah. And so you have perhaps configuration issues associated with that. It's a learning process. And you know, it's, uh, I think another facet of this that's perhaps interesting is that you, know, you hear about these really big breaches associated with credit card information or customer information. Uh, those are the big companies that have a whole lot of customers. Right. Perhaps I never really hear about these smaller organizations that have been hit or maybe they haven't been targeted quite yet, but as bigger organizations are paying more attention, the tendency will be for the attackers to migrate more toward the smaller, lesser known ones. They're not going to get as big right. of a payoff, but they're going to get a payoff and it's going to be much more difficult to track right. because it's smaller ones. And, and there's more of them, right? right. You, you're talking about, you know, once you get to that middle level, you're, you know, the it's a vast mm -hmm. sea of them out there. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, yeah. so a lot of good logic behind this. Yep, John. Yeah, is it is it like you know? As, as a friend of mine says, like, is, is it there's more and more of those entry level com groups like you know, mom and pop in Booger, Arkansas, friends of mine like this, is you know who are getting into e-commerce that never you really may not even have much more than a PC sitting in their shop today, but now they want to you know they want to sell something online, and, and so they they do use whatever they can get and don't understand that they have all this setup and configuration that are, are really required to do it safely. Yep, yep. absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of good logic behind this. I think that's uh, it's a very plausible prediction. Yeah, we'll see where that one goes. But all right. Good. Well, thanks, John. Thanks, Benny. Absolutely. Good discussion today. We'll see how it plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Talk next year. <laughs> the views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.